Thank you, Kelly, and thank you, Jay. Not quite Vanna White, but you were, you were close. That was well done. Good job. And I'm glad that that faith was a faith that worked. That, that, was, that was really good. Well, what makes me happy is starting a new sermon series. I love starting a new sermon series. I get excited about it. I look forward to it. And, and this one in particular, I feel just is a great follow-up to what we've spent the first half of this year doing. We spent the first half of this year looking at what we believe. And for the second half, we're going to look at how we behave. Because right belief should always translate to right behavior. And, and we've looked at our statement of faith. James helps us know how to put that faith to work, how to put it into action. In fact, the last sermon series was called, We Believe, Doctrines That Make a Difference. We've looked at the doctrines. James helps us understand the difference this faith should make in our lives and in the lives of other people. Uh, James, I think, does a better job of this than just about any book in the Bible. And uh, the theme verse for James is found in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And if you pair that with what James talks about in chapter 2, uh, and you can find that summarized in verses 14 through 16. I'm not going to read those. I'm, sorry, 14 through 26. I'm not going to read those today. But in that passage, he, he unpacks that. He makes the case for having a faith that works. We're not saved by a faith, a faith plus works, but we're saved by a faith that works. A faith that is powerful. A faith that is effective. A faith that makes a difference in our lives. Fourteen times in this small letter, James mentions the word faith, but he gives us 59 commands. So he's emphasizing a faith. He's emphasizing this pure and undefiled religion before God the Father, but it's one that does something. It makes a difference. Now, anytime we study a book of the Bible, there are some key questions that we need to ask ourselves and answer, and we want to do that by way of introduction to this sermon series. If you look with me at... Chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. So this is a letter. It's a letter written by James. Now, the author, James, who, who is this? Well, there are four men in the New Testament named James. Two of them are apostles. Uh, but the one that wrote this letter is James the half-brother of Jesus. Joseph and Mary had children together after Jesus was born, and James is one of those, and he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So he is the most likely author of this letter. Most scholars uh, agree that. And he was uniquely equipped to uh, be able to write this letter. He, he's addressing these scattered Jewish believers, and he is writing to them based on the fact that, well, he, he's Jewish, he grew up like all Jewish boys did in Torah school. He knew the Torah very well, and he studied it for all of his life. And he grew up with Jesus. He knew Jesus so well. And he became a follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus, and became basically the, the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Who is he writing to? That's the author. You always want to ask the author, who is writing this book? But secondly, you want to say, Who's he writing it to? Who are the recipients? Who's the intended audience for this? Well, he says to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. What does that mean? Well, James is addressing Jewish Christians. 
They're Jews like he was who became followers of Jesus. They lived there in Jerusalem. They were members of his church and they've been scattered abroad by persecution. In fact, two waves of persecution. The first happens early. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is stoned to death, there was a dispersal of Christians from Jerusalem fleeing persecution. Then later on in Acts chapter 12, under Herod Agrippa, there's a second wave of persecution. So he uses this very Jewish designation, the 12 tribes, because these were Jewish Christians and they'd been scattered all over the Roman world due to persecution. Another good question to ask when you're studying a book of the Bible is when was it written and where? What's the date and the location? Well, as I said, James, he's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, so he's writing this from Jerusalem, and we guess that he's writing between 44 and 49 A.D., prior to the Jerusalem Council we read about in Acts chapter 15. That would make this one of the earliest New Testament books. You're talking 14, 10 to 14 years after the events recorded in the Gospels. That's pretty early. And, uh, you know, James looks at these people he's writing to, scattered all around, as his sheep. He still thinks of himself as their pastor, even though they've gone to other locations and have other churches. And so he's writing this letter as a pastoral encouragement and instruction to them. In fact, the opening chapter of James introduces every theme and every key word or phrase that James is going to address in his whole letter. And he comes back to these things time and again throughout the letter. And he's drawing from Jewish literature. He's drawing from Proverbs, particularly the first nine chapters of Proverbs. But he's also drawing from the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, you'll see in every sermon in this series, I will point us back at some time to the Sermon on the Mount. That's his biggest source that he is drawing from. And he's laying out the nuts and bolts for how we are to love God and love people the way that Jesus loved us. And that brings us to the purpose. Why is James writing this letter? Well, he's alarmed at two trends that he is seeing among these scattered believers. And I'm going to call these uh, the church in the world. The first is the church in the world. He's, He's looking at these believers scattered by persecution, facing other kinds of hardship as well. There there are socioeconomic hardships, there's oppression, there's persecution, there's there's all the various trials we all deal with in life. So he's looking at the church in the world, but secondly, more concerning is the world in the church. He sees this growing worldliness. And, And twice in this letter, James warns us against befriending the world and being influenced by godly ungodliness. This worldliness apparently manifested itself in a number of ways, and it almost outlines the rest of the book for us. He's going to talk about double-mindedness, showing partiality to the rich and powerful, uncontrolled speech, unspiritual wisdom, arrogance. These are all things that we will look at. And what James is wanting to accomplish is he is addressing these two issues, the world and the church, kind of uh, this inner... Uh, turmoil that we deal with, this inner temptation, but also the church and the world, the outer hardships that come at us as he's dressing these, he's wanting to do three things. He wants to comfort them in their sorrows. He wants to rebuke them for their worldliness. And he wants to counsel them in how to redirect their lives. So he wants to comfort them as they deal with living in this sinful fallen world. He wants to rebuke them for allowing that world into their hearts to influence them. 
And then he wants to counsel them in both. How do we redirect our lives and live out our faith? And he jumps right into that first goal of comfort here in verses 2 through 4. So let's look together at James 1, verses 2 through 4. We've talked about this already several times this morning, this idea of hardship, of trial, of joy. He says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, these verses, and and really the rest of chapter 1, are a little challenging to uh, interpret, especially if you're using an older translation. Uh, And that's because the words trial, testing, and temptation that we read here all are the same one Greek word. And that word is piero. And it can mean all of these. It can mean an inner enticement to sin. And when, when it's that, it's usually translated temptation. Look at verses 13 through 15. He says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. So that, the word trial and the word tempted there is the same word. But that word tempted is conveying the idea of this inward enticement to sin, the, the world in the church aspect of it. But Piera can also mean an outer affliction, an outer hardship, something out there that is affecting us. And in that way, it's often uh, translated as trial or testing. That's the world, in, that's the church living out in the world. So James is going to help us think about both. And beginning in verse 13, we'll look at this in a few weeks, he's specifically going to talk about this inner enticement to sin. How do we face and deal with temptations? But for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at this idea of outward trials, the things that we face from out there that come at us. And the first question we need to answer is, how do we respond to these? How do we respond to these outward trials that come at us? And James tells us we respond by considering it joy. Considering it an occasion for joy. Now, that's not your knee-jerk reaction, is it? Hardships are not fun. (laughs) We don't enjoy them. We don't like trials and difficulties to come our way. But James doesn't say that the trial is joyful. He says we should consider those trials as an occasion for joy. It allows joy to shine. See, James isn't being flippant. He's not just spouting platitudes. He's not telling us to ignore the pain that we feel or or the reality of the tough decisions we sometimes have to make. That's not what he's doing. In his book, Jesus, Man of Joy, author Sherwood Elliott describes joy as more than fun, yet it has fun, It expresses itself in laughter and elation, yet it draws from a deep spring that keeps flowing long after the laughter has died and the tears have come. Kelly did a great job illustrating this difference between happiness and joy. Uh, The the Middle English word hap, it's where we get the word happy from, it means chance occurrence. It means luck. The word happen, right? Right? comes from this. If something happens, it's a random occurrence. It's something that just happens to us. We could say that our happiness is determined by what happens to us, right? 
So when good things happen to us, when somebody gives me Skittles, I'm happy. When bad things happen to us, we're not happy. The happiness goes away, like having to come home from vacation. But joy is different. Happiness has a short shelf life. Easy come, easy go. Happiness is dictated by what happens on the outside, but joy comes from the inside. Paul lists it among the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is something that God produces within us, in here, no matter what's happening to us out there. And what kind of joy does James tell us to have? Great joy. Now, some translations might say pure. The NIV says pure. The the Greek word there is the word pos, and it, it accompanies the idea of wholeness, of completeness. James is saying, consider it pure joy, all joy, whole, complete joy. He's focusing on the quality of the joy, the depth of the joy. Scholars call this eschatological joy, that word eschatological, eschatology, the study of the end times, right? Eschatological joy means that we are able to look at current circumstances through the lens of the future. We're looking through it to the end when Christ returns and renews all things. It means that our trials don't get the last word. It means that true and lasting peace and justice is coming someday. And because of that, because of what is going to come, we can face the dire circumstances today with joy. Now you may be thinking, well, David, that sounds nice. Everything you're saying sounds great. But when you're dealing with a cancer diagnosis, a failing business, when those dollars don't stretch so far anymore and you can't make ends meet, when you have a broken relationship, how do we do this? How do we consider it joy? Well, we have to rely on God's Spirit to produce it in us. Joy isn't something you can manufacture on your own. You can't just will yourself to being more joyful. It's something you have to allow God's Spirit to do in you. It's a fruit You know, I've got a garden and I love getting out there in the garden, but sometimes it's a little frustrating because I can't make that squash plant produce squash, can I? I can't stand there and say, you can do it, you can do it. Come on, give me some squash. Now, I can water it, I can fertilize it, I can pull weeds, I can can cultivate it, but it has to produce the fruit. We can't produce joy in our lives, but we can cultivate it. We can weed out the joy killers, right? I mean, we've got joy killers, worry, being overly consumed with material things and wealth, unforgiveness and bitterness in our heart towards somebody, you know, comparing ourselves to other people. We can weed out the joy killers and we can embrace spiritual practices like being in community with other believers. You know, one way we can have joy and hardship is when we surround ourselves with people that are going to weep when we weep and rejoice when we rejoice. People that are going to be there to walk with us through the dark valleys. People that are going to be there to give us a shoulder to cry on, to help us out in our times of need. We can embrace spiritual practices like prayer and studying God's Word and being thankful. Having an attitude of gratitude. Paul talks about giving thanks to God in all circumstances. There's something very freeing and healing about that. Joy sets us free from slavery to fear and worry and bitterness. 
So the second question is, so the first thing we have to do, James kind of gives us his thesis right out. He says, here's the command, and this is the command in this passage. Consider it all joy. Count it all joy when you face hardships. But then he goes into talking about the nature of these hardships. What is the nature of these trials? Look with me again. Let's start at the beginning of verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. I want to look at these three words, whenever, experience, and various. Okay, Whenever tells us that the trials are inevitable. He doesn't say if you face trials. He doesn't say you might face some trials. He says when they come. There's no, there's no ifs here, no maybes. Trials are inevitable for everyone, including Christians. Jesus never promised that when we follow Him, life is going to be easy. In fact, Jesus Himself, the sinless Son of God, suffered and died for you and me. Based on that, Paul says in Philippians 1.29, he says, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Jesus suffered for us. We sometimes suffer for Him. Paul says again in 1 Thessalonians 3, he says, so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. And he tells us, for you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. He says we're appointed to afflictions. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that you were going to experience affliction, and as you know, it happened. So not only does the Bible not promise us The absence of affliction, it promises us that we will experience affliction. We will face trials and hardships. Parents know this well. No matter how hard you try to protect your kids, when they're toddlers, no no, no matter how many little locks on the cabinets you make and how many of those little bumpers you put around the furniture, they're going to get hurt, aren't they? If you drive a car long enough, you're going to have a flat tire or a wreck or be on the side of the road having problems. That's why we have insurance and AAA and and spare tires in our car. The the issue isn't whether or not trials are going to come. They're going to come. The question is, how do we respond to them? How do we handle them when they do? So, So they're inevitable. Secondly, he says they're unsought. The word experience. Whenever you experience, it's the Greek word peripipto. It's a fun word to say. Peripipto. It means encounter to fall into, which is the way it's translated in the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. It says that he fell into the hands of robbers. It's the same word. He didn't go looking for the robbers. He just happened upon them. He fell into them. He encountered them. And in the same way, we don't seek persecutions. We don't look for trials. We often stumble into them of no fault of our own. And, and, and if you're a homeowner, you especially know what this is like, right? I mean, just this, this past month, and I've talked to several of you about this, I, our well stopped working and we had it repaired twice. Uh, I, for the first time in 21 years, twice in a row, tried to change the filter on the well and broke the filter housing right off the pipe twice. Each time these happened, one day after the other, and within a day, a storm blew up and blew down a tree in my yard. So... These trials were unsought. I didn't want these things to happen. No homeowner does. Nobody wants to have to call the plumber, especially on the weekend. You don't seek for these things to happen, but they happen. They're they're inevitable. They're unsought and they're varied. He says various trials. Now, 
Paul's audience, like us, experienced various problems. From the minor, like having problems with your well or a tree blowing down in your yard. Thankfully, it didn't hit the house and do any damage. But we, we deal with these minor trials. We deal with major trials. We, big and small. Trials that are easily resolved and trials that have lasting impact that take a lifetime to deal with. And, and James's readers had a variety of trials, but specifically two categories of trials that James addresses. One is, the first is persecution. That's obvious. These believers are scattered because of persecution. They're scattered all over the Roman world. And much of Peter and Paul and John's letters in the New Testament deal with this. They address the persecution the early church was facing. And when we think of persecution, we tend to sort of think of back then. Oh, yeah, under the Roman Empire. Yeah, the, the gladiators, the, you know, the, the, the arena with the animals and yeah, all the terrible things that happened to Christians. But listen, more Christians are persecuted around the world today than at any time in human history. And they largely happen in communist and Muslim-majority countries. But even we know and see and experience in this country that in the Western world, there's a growing hostility to biblical Christianity. We see it. We, we even feel it. We may be experiencing some of that pushback, some of that hostility today. And when it comes to counting it pure joy to endure persecution, James had some rich material to pull from. He went straight to the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice. Because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, when we face persecution, James is just repeating Jesus. Rejoice. You're blessed to be able to be persecuted for the cause of Christ. But then also, there are just the common difficulties of life. Just the everyday trials that we face because we live in a fallen world marred by sin and its effects. And James will address several examples of these. He'll talk about sickness and financial problems and broken relationships and, and all of these kinds of trials. And when we face these trials, we often ask this next question, where do they come from? Where do these trials come from? And first, we need to distinguish between the suffering that we bring upon ourselves and the suffering that we just fall into because of the world in which we live. You know, some trials are our own fault, aren't they? Sometimes we suffer things our own fault. Peter makes this distinction when he was talking about persecution. He told his readers to make sure that the persecution that came their way was undeserved. He says in 1 Peter 4, verses 14 through 16, If you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But then he gives us a good warning. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed to let him glorify God in having that name. Peter's saying, look, the, the, the law of sowing and reaping is still in effect. And so our choices do have consequences. Sometimes we choose the right thing. We live for Jesus and we suffer bad consequences. We're persecuted. But when we make bad choices and bad consequences come our way, we have no one to blame but ourselves, do we? When we abuse our bodies, our health is going to deteriorate. When we mistreat the people around us, our relationships are going to suffer. When we neglect to feed ourselves spiritually, our walk with God will grow stagnant. We know this to be true. 
We know that we reap what we sow, but when those consequences start pouring in, we like to kind of ignore that reaping and sowing bit, don't we? And we instead say, God, why are you doing this to me? God, why are you letting these things happen to me? Maybe God's just letting us experience the consequences of the path that we've decided to walk down. And the proper response to that kind of suffering is simple. Confess your sin, repent, and walk the other way, right? Now, this is, you know, as much as we don't like the consequences of our actions, at least we can understand that, right? At least we get it. If we're honest, yeah, I've brought this on myself. But what about the suffering that, as far as we can tell, comes to us through no fault of our own? That's the part we struggle with. How do we handle this type of seemingly unjustified suffering? Where does that even come from? Well, sometimes God allows us to suffer various trials to accomplish a specific purpose, either in our life or in the life of someone else. And sometimes we are just simply suffering the effects of living in a sinful, fallen world. It's just the common hardships that everybody faces, but even those God can use for our good and for His glory. Think back to the life of Joseph. We talked about Joseph a few weeks ago. Our our VBS was around the life of Joseph. He experienced wave after wave after wave of mistreatment, of trials and hardships, of, of injustice and persecution. His brothers sold him into slavery. He was accused of a crime he didn't commit. He ended up in prison. And he really didn't do anything to bring any of that on himself. It wasn't his fault. And I have to imagine that for those two years he sat forgotten in prison, he must have asked himself, why do these bad things keep happening to me? But Joseph discovered the answer to that question years later. There was a purpose to his suffering. It's so that he could be in a position to be the savior of the Egyptian people, the savior of the people around him, the savior even of his own family to spare them from the coming famine. As Joseph would later tell his brothers in Genesis 50, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. So we face trials sometimes of our own making, sometimes not. We face trials that just come because that's just being a human being. And sometimes we face trials that God intends to use in our lives for a specific purpose. From all of those, God has a purpose. Through all of those, God can work and do something amazing. And that's the last question. What is the purpose of trials? One commentary said, we need to realize that trials are not joyful in and of themselves, but they are joyful when we realize they're under the authority of a sovereign God who is accomplishing His purposes through them. And James gives us three ways that God might use our trials to work in our lives. The first is trials refine our faith. Trials refine our faith. Look at verse 3. Let's go back to verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Okay, Why? He tells us, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing of your faith. Any difficult in our life, including persecution, including things we bring on ourselves, any trials we face can be used to test and refine our faith. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, and and listen to this, this is amazing how similar what Peter says here, how similar it is to what James is saying. Peter says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, 
so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We can rejoice in our trials because we know that God can use them to refine our faith, to burn off the dross, to make our faith stronger. For James, the trials purify a faith already there. For Peter, he says that through the refining fire of trials, the character of our faith is proven. So our faith is both proven and purified through the testing of trials. So we don't rejoice because we suffer, but we rejoice because we we know God is working in our lives through the suffering. But if, if your goal in life is to live your best life now, if your goal in life is to have a nice, easy-going life of nothing but fun and pleasure, then you're never going to find joy in your suffering or in your trials. But if your goal is to grow in Christ-likeness, if your goal is to know, love, and serve God more, then you can find joy that God is accomplishing that through your life, even in the midst of hardships. The trials refine our faith. Secondly, They develop perseverance. James says, because you know that the testing of your faith, he doesn't end right there, the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now some translations say steadfastness or fortitude. The idea, the Greek word there is stick-to-itiveness. I'm just kidding, it's not not the Greek word. Stick-to-itiveness is what we need. You guys are writing that down. The Greek word is stick-to-itiveness. James is saying we have staying power. Our faith doesn't give out when we face these hardships. And we need that today. We need some good old-fashioned stick-to-itiveness because too many people are too quick to give up and back down and sit down and shut up and go along with the crowd. And we should never acquiesce to the cultural mob in terms of truth and morality, even if it means we face persecution. Paul says in Romans 5, 3 through 5, and not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. We don't just count it joy, we boast in it because we know that the affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. Isn't it amazing how much what Peter, Paul, and James say right here sound almost exactly the same? You'd almost think there's like a central mind behind the writing of all this stuff, wouldn't you? Yeah, you might, you might think that there's one author really kind of guiding all this. I mean, they're almost identical in what they're saying. And he says this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So Paul is saying that, that just like James, it's a process. It's a process whereby through these afflictions, our, te- our faith is refined. It produces endurance, which produces proven character, which produces hope. We all know that that if you're on the athletic field or you're in the classroom or you're in the office, if you persevere, if you have endurance, if you work through things and stick to it, you'll be smarter, you'll be stronger, you'll be more successful. Endurance proves us, it develops us, it grows us, it gives us hope. And third, he says the trials help us mature. That's really the end of the process. Endurance in and itself is not the goal. It's not the final product. It's the beginning of a process of maturity. He says in verse 4, let endurance have its full effect so you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That phrase, let endurance have its full effect, is written in the third person imperative. 
So you could translate it, endurance must have its full effect. It must. We're responsible for letting God complete this process of endurance in our lives until it, we get the full benefit of it. Earlier I mentioned eschatological joy. Well, scholars talk about this maturity, this completeness, as an eschatological gift. It's not something that we necessarily realize in this life, but it's something that God is moving us toward. It's the prize that we keep our eyes on at the end of the race, this perfection, this completeness, this full maturity in Christ. And that means that God is more interested today in your character than your comfort. He's more interested in developing holiness in you than happiness in you. And so, yes, God allows trials in our lives and He uses the hardships that we face to test and refine our faith, to develop perseverance and endurance and a stick to in us and to grow us towards completeness and maturity in Christ. Earlier we saw where Peter explained how a faith that is tested by fire will bring praise, honor, and glory to Christ. You can't always see in the moment when you're in that dark valley, you can't always see the light at the end of the tunnel. You can't always see how can God possibly use this for His glory or my good. But you know something? You don't have to see something for it to be there. You don't have to understand something for it to be true. And there's coming a day when all the suffering and all the trials and hardships will come, in, come to an end. There's coming a day when all the suffering and the sorrow will pass. When Christ returns, His justice will be supreme we will be made whole and new. And on that day, I think we can look back over our lives and really over all of human history and we'll see the fingerprints of God. We'll see the footsteps of Jesus that we walk in. And we'll see how He was glorified through it all. We'll see how it all... We'll understand better by and by as we sang earlier. And as our New Testament reading said in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction... And listen, when Paul says momentary light affliction, he's not downplaying whatever it is you're facing. You may think momentary and light. This is life-changing. It's relative. Look what he says. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an incomparable eternal weight of glory. He's saying that compared to what's to come, compared to that eternal weight of glory, the worst we can experience in this life is like a momentary light affliction. That doesn't lessen what we experience in this life. It magnifies the blessing that is to come. And because of that, he says, we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. In view of eternity, it is momentary. But what is unseen is eternal. Where is your focus today? Are you focused on the seen or the unseen? Are you weighed down and worried by the temporary or are you uplifted by the eternal? Listen this morning. Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross. He took upon Himself the full weight of the wrath of God that you and I deserved so that our forgiveness could be purchased. So that we could be made alive. So that we could be forgiven and given a fresh start and be in a right relationship with God. Hebrews says that He endured the shame of the cross with joy. 
How could Jesus do that? Because Jesus knew that through what He was suffering, you and I could have eternal life with Him in heaven. Have you trusted in what Jesus Christ did for you? Have you turned from your sins? Maybe this morning you need to say, God, I I know I'm a sinner and I know I've been doing things my own way and I know I've brought some stuff upon myself, but I give it all to you, Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. Make me new and live within me. If you've never done that, I pray you would come and do that today. What trials are you enduring today? How might God be using whatever it is you're going through to purify and refine and strengthen your faith? How might He be using it to grow your witness? How might He be using it to discipline you? How might He be using it to bring glory to His name? Whatever you're facing today, how would God have you respond to it? I think at the very least, He would ask you to lay it at the feet of Jesus and trust Him to work through it, to develop in you joy, to develop in you endurance, to refine and strengthen your faith, and to help you grow in Christ-likeness. Would you stand and pray with me? And I hope that you will come and respond as God's Spirit leads you today. Father, You don't mince any words. You don't sugarcoat for us the difficulties that we experience in this life, that You promise to walk with us through every dark valley. You promise to ride with us through every storm. You promise to provide us a safe harbor that we can aim for. And You promise to take whatever it is we're dealing with and to use it for Your glory and our good. We can't always understand or see how that's going to work, but I pray You would refine our faith enough that we can trust that it's true. Lord, whatever the people here today are listening from home or experiencing today, I pray that you would help them to find that joy. Help them to persevere and endure. Help them to grow and to mature. And help them to take whatever it is they're dealing with and to use it to bless other people, to point people to Jesus, to come to know you more. Father, forgive us for our sins. And Lord, whatever you're speaking to our hearts, I pray we would step out in faith and obey you today. In Jesus' name. Let's respond together. Sweetly, Lord.